optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I've re-recorded this intro like 17 times because I saw my brother last night after a long hiatus apart, and we drank, i.e. Tim drank way, way, way too much wine. So I've had some caffeine, I've had some coconut oil in Pu'er tea, and this one is going to make it happen, folks. Magic. Okay, onward. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is, like many others, it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they are chess prodigies, hedge fund managers, athletes, actors like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or anybody and everyone in between. And what I mean by that is teasing out the the routines, the morning rituals, the favorite books, the behaviors and habits that you can borrow to improve your own life in a professional sense and a personal sense. This episode, we have Phil Libin. Phil Libin is a friend. He is also the co-founder and executive chairman of Evernote. I use Evernote, as you guys probably know, every day. I mean, dozens of times a day. Uh, I used it to handle all of the brain dumps and organization of information and capture of information for my last few books. I also use it 
to create a paperless life or as close to it as possible. And I was introduced to Evernote by you guys on Twitter, actually, in I want to say 2008, maybe 2009, when I was revising the four hour work week. And I ended up recommending Evernote in that once I got hooked on the product. Then I got to know Phil, and then I became an advisor to the company, which is super, super cool. So I've been an advisor since I want to say 2008, 2009. And Evernote now has 150 or so million users. And it is your external brain. So you can use it to capture things online. So you can read them offline. You can use it to capture voice notes, photographs, scan documents with your iPhone, for instance, so that you can take a picture of a, of a receipt, of a menu, of a, a contract, and then have it OCR'd so that you can search the text that you just took a photo of later. Anyway, I could go on and on about it because I love the product. I can't, it's like Uber for me. I can't live without it. But in this episode, we cover so much more than just Evernote. But uh, we do dig in, obviously, to the lessons learned. And speaking of lessons learned, Phil shares his favorite lessons learned directly from Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn, and Hiroshi Mikitani of Rakuten. And if you don't know who he is, then you should look him up. We talk about philosophical and performance systems like stoicism, electrical brain stimulation, which I know you guys are into. And if you want a ton on that, you can also listen to my Adam Ghazali episode. But uh, Phil is experimenting with uh, brain stimulation uh, for performance enhancement and just general well-being. And we'll talk about that. Creating tech for yourself and the Evernote Genesis story. They're very closely tied together. We have some frivolities, like the best toast in Singapore, the best hamburger in Tokyo, and why Goat Simulator is amazing. And then we talk about uh, long-term thinking. Long-term meaning 10,000-year thinking and real versus imagined threats. We talk about artificial intelligence and a bunch of others. Now, most importantly, in general, across this episode, he digs into his aha moments and what he learned, in some cases, how they happened and how you can make that happen for yourself. So Phil is an awesome guy, hilarious, and just an amazing, amazing executive. Now, when we recorded this, he was also CEO of Evernote, but he has been looking for his successor for some time now. And uh, in the meantime, uh, between recording this and publishing it, he found that CEO. So you can just Google new Evernote CEO and you can get all the goods on that. In any case, uh, you can find the show notes, all the links, the uh, book links, etc., at fourhourworkweek.com and just click podcast. So fourhourworkweek.com, click podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy Phil Libin and say hi to him on uh, Twitter, at P Libin, L-I-B-I-N. Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. Good to be here. It, uh, it has been a while since we hung out, and I've noticed... The most conspicuous change is that the trademark beard has vanished. And I wanted to know how you decided to make that change because for as long as I've known you, I have sort of visualized in my head this beard that you have, which is, I guess, it's not really a goatee. It's not really a full ears to chin beard. It's more like a mouth frame. I don't know if there's a word for those. Mouth frame. <laughs> yeah. Huh. <laughs> Man, had I thought of it as a mouth frame, would have shaved so much earlier. <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's probably due to my lack of caffeine. But how did you decide to to sh or why did you decide to shave it off? Well, I had it literally for twenty years. Um, I hadn't shaved in twenty years. I had this I had this beard, and when I grew it twenty years ago, I was um, I was trying to look older. 
And, you know, 20 years later, I figured it was time to start trying to look younger. <laughs> That's how that works. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, for, for those people who are familiar with Evernote, one of the questions that I've heard come up quite a bit is, and we'll get to what Evernote is, of course, but why green for the logo? The elephant people eventually figure out, but right. why, why green? Well, so the logo is gray. Uh, it's an, so it's an elephant, right? Because elephants, uh, elephants never forget. Elephants have great memories. And the elephant is gray. And people ask, well, why is the elephant gray? And it's, well, because that's the color elephants are. And uh, it's on a green background because that's the color that elephants are usually on when they're on grass. So it's not, uh, it's not super elaborate. Um, got it. <laughs> natural, imaginative. natural habitat. Natural. It is... It is uh, it is the iconic animal in its natural habitat. And how, speaking of, of natural habitat, uh, I'm not going to say an iconic animal uh, for either of us, but when did we first meet? I want to say it was in a coffee shop, but do you recall? Yeah, it was at a, it wasn't a coffee shop. It was like a Filipino Oh, it was, the, it was the, like a Chinese tapioca pearl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slash it definitely involved shop. tapioca. I remember... <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember those tapioca involved, uh, like in the outskirts of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was like, uh, man, I want to say like 1854 or something. It was a while ago. <laughs> right. I think you're using the, uh, right, the Egyptian calendar. It was probably yeah. 2000, <laughs> I want to say 2007, 2008. It was early. Yeah. I mean, I think we had, we had only recently launched. And, um, uh, and I think... I think I remember like you tweeted something to your followers about what you should, what app you should be using to maybe, maybe it's to write your next book. And then I think a bunch of people tweeted back Evernote and then, uh, people in my office saw it and got super excited. And then I think either you reached out to me or I reached out to you and then we got together for tapioca. So what, what I remember is that I asked a number of questions. I was, I think I was updating the four hour work week. Right. And I was looking to replace some of the tools. And so I would ask my followers on Twitter, what is the best tool for X? What is the best tool for Y? What is the best tool for Z? And Evernote kept on coming up. And I was like, that's impossible. What is this Swiss Army knife of software? And I looked at it and I was like, you know, I really need an intro to this. I'm having trouble figuring out where to start, which I think is a common, a common, uh, stumbling block or hurdle for people to get over. And yeah. then we met up and I remember you took a photograph of the menu, which was on the wall. And shortly thereafter, we were able to search all of the text. And I was like, okay, I get it. And then I think I started with de-paperifying uh, or trying to remove the clutter of paper from my house at that time. Right. So it's all the business cards, all of the legal paperwork, accounting paperwork, I just scanned it because I knew I didn't have to really organize it per se if I could search by the text that was scanned. And for people who don't know, I mean, this is this was my first use case, but how would you describe Evernote? If you could just maybe give a brief synopsis of Evernote for folks. And now, of course, I mean, I use it 10 to 20 plus times a day. But uh, for those people who are not familiar with Evernote, what is Evernote and uh, how did uh, how did you become involved? Or what is your involvement with Evernote? Well, what we started out as, uh, as wanting to build your, your second brain. Uh, we wanted to make something that would just make people smarter, uh, let you remember everything, let you find all types of information, uh, take notes, uh, clip things from the web, put in documents. 
Um, and it, um, it, it, we just kind of refined it from there. So we started out as this very general, you know, simple note-taking tool. Uh, and we've evolved to be uh, what we think are kind of the essential everyday pillars of, of productivity. Um, we, Evernote is, you know, it's the workspace where you, you get all your stuff done. And what are the, what are the origins of Evernote? What's the, well, the, the, gen- um, to the genesis story? There's actually two teams um, that were working on, on, on similar concepts. So there was a team of people that uh, were headed up by this guy named uh, Stepan Pachikov, who is this um, sort of eccentric uh, genius inventor, entrepreneur, uh, Russian-American guy. And he had a team of people that uh, go all the way back to the Apple-Newton days. I don't know if you remember that. Sure. Uh, this was actually the company that Apple pulled out of Russia – uh, to do all the handwriting recognition, all the cool stuff on the Newton, like back in the late 80s, um, you know, way ahead of their time. And they, they sort of stayed together. They sold that company and then they started another company and sold that company. And then they, were, they stayed together as this group working on um, this idea of photographic memory, basically letting people remember uh, everything, capture all information in California. I was in Boston at the time and uh, we had – I was just finishing up with my second startup. Uh, and my core team started thinking about, well, what do we want to do next? You know, we need to start another company. We don't, you know, want to have to go get jobs or anything. Uh, <laughs> so what are we going to do? And we thought, well, um, strategic unemployment, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and our whole insight was let's do something for us, you know, cause our first two companies we made, uh, for other, for other people, you know, our first company, we did a uh, e-commerce software for big stores and, our second company, we did a security software for governments and banks, and that was all fine. You know, we were lucky enough to be able to sell both companies, but like we're not we're not a big retailer, we're not a government, so like we didn't really. We had to wake up every morning thinking, you know, what does the customer want? What does the customer want? What does the market want? And we got tired of that. We kind of said, well, screw what the market wants. Like, how about what do we want? Let's just build that. Mm-hmm. So we sat around thinking, like, what do we really want? What do we love? And we batted some ideas around. And uh, our first idea is we said, well, you know, we love video games. Like maybe we should make a video game studio. And we thought, well, you know, but there's already so many great video games that we don't have time to play. Like there's already a giant stack at my desk. Uh, so, you know, we don't really, the world isn't really going to be that much better if we add more video games to it. So let's, let's think of something else. And this was 2007. So we thought about, well, all this new social stuff is actually kind of cool. Like we like that a lot. Maybe we should build a social network. And we thought, uh, now, that's crazy because, you know, you can't compete with MySpace. Like, MySpace is you know, <laughs> in that market. Uh, you know, we're too late to do anything meaningful there. So we, we gave up on, on that. And then we said, well, what about productivity? Like, all the productivity tools around us just feel old and crappy and, and out of date and, and largely irrelevant. What if we make the new version of that? And, and that we kind of fell in love with. So we had two different teams working on the same problem. And we, I met Stepan um, early 2007, and we decided to, to join forces. So we actually combined the teams and then recreated the, the, the company, kind of relaunched the company as a new entity in 07 uh, and launched our first product in 08. And what was the first use case, the first application of Evernote that really kind of made your eyes pop out? That uh, the, Was there any... Do you have any memories of particular aha moments with either applications that you guys came up with internally or applications and uses that your fans and users came up with? Well, it's funny. You know, we were, we were getting going kind of right as Twitter was getting going. And so for a while, you know, I just had an alert for Evernote on Twitter and I could read every single time. Anytime anyone mentioned Evernote on Twitter, I would see it because 
you know, it was only like this, that only happened like a few times a day. <laughs> it was a few hundred people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, that was easy. Uh, and so I literally knew every time anyone said anything on either the internet or Twitter, uh, about Evernote, I wouldn't, I would either get a Google alert or, or I would, I would get the tweet alert. Uh, so I kept for a while, I actually knew like every single thing that anyone ever said publicly about us. Uh, and it was, and it was still only like a few things a day. So it was, it was kind of a humbling, uh, thing. But I remember this one day pretty early on, um, where somebody tweeted two two totally different people tweeted. Uh, one of them tweeted, um, uh, that, uh, they were a priest and they loved using Evernote to gather information to write their, uh, their Sunday sermon. Hmm. And I remember seeing that and kind of thinking like, ah, oh, that wasn't our intended use case at all. Like we didn't set out to make something that's good for the clergy, but you know, it kind of makes sense. Like if you think about it, like, yeah, if I was a priest and I had to come up with something relatively, uh, insightful and witty to say every week, I'd probably spend time, you know, researching and, and, and clipping and writing and like, actually, yeah, Evernote is kind of the ideal thing for that. So I remember thinking like, that's kind of a cool unanticipated use case. And then later that day, some totally different person tweeted, uh, not, not to the first person, just, you know, independently, um, that, uh, uh, he loved Evernote because it made it easy to keep track of all of his sins, uh, so that he could, uh, efficiently confess every Sunday. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, yes, like now we're onto something like we got both ends of the spectrum. We got, we got the priests, we got the sinners. We were like, we were like fully horizontally integrated, uh, <laughs> theologically integrated, theological horizontal integration. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that that was when I was first confident that like yeah, maybe we were maybe we were onto something. I, how do you personally use Evernote? And I think that the, the reason I keep drilling into this is because I remember my challenge was figuring out where to start. And yeah. that's the hardest. I mean, that's still the, the hardest thing for us is people don't know how to get started. So I guess there are two questions, right? Like, how do you personally use Evernote? I'd be curious to hear how how you most frequently use Evernote. And then secondly. How do you solve that problem? Because this is not unique to just Evernote, right? There are many different products. Let's say Sugru, for instance, which is this mm-hmm. uh, kind of Play-Doh that hardens into uh, rubber that you can use for repairing things. It has a similar challenge. There, there are many different tools and products that that face this conundrum. So the first is, yeah. how do you? I've got like multiple tubes of that at my desk right now. Oh, you do? Yeah, it's great stuff. It's uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and like because I, I remember reading about it somewhere. And immediately being like, oh, that's awesome. I need to get it right away. And then I got it and I got all these like packages that showed up in my desk. And I was like, okay, now what? Like my glasses aren't actually broken, so I don't need it to fix my glasses yet. <laughs> right. Right. My iPhone case isn't broken, so I have to break it to use the Sugru. Or like, what else can I do, right? Yeah. So with, with Evernote on a, on a personal level, how do you use it? So I, you know, I live in it. Um, I do everything in it. Um, mostly I, I use Evernote to run Evernote. Uh, like we built it for ourselves and we're still building it for ourselves. So all of the day-to-day things that I need for my job are in Evernote. I, I, I primarily use Evernote for, for work stuff, but I primarily only do work stuff. Like I don't really have a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to have more, more hobbies and skills and, and, and I would use Evernote for them as well. Like I, I, I was, I'm a plausibly okay cook and so I had a whole bunch of you know, recipes and techniques in Evernote for that. Uh, I was, uh, I was trying to learn Japanese at one point and I was using Evernote for that, but more and more like everything that isn't work related has sort of fallen away. Um, and, but I just use Evernote for everything work related. So everything I write, uh, I write in Evernote, uh, all of our meetings are captured in Evernote. 
when I want to know what people in, in, in the company are working on, I, I look at Evernote. Evernote kind of gives me an update about, uh, here's, here's what all my coworkers are doing that are relevant to, that's relevant to my day. Uh, it's kind of become the, the essential, you know, multiple times a day um, productivity tool for me. Yeah, I'm looking, well, I'm looking at questions for you in Evernote right now, which is very meta, but, uh, that, and, and so that actually happens a lot. Like I, the first time that I did a, uh, I remember the first time I talked to a reporter, um, you know, I, I, we did our very first like media tour. I went to like New York city to, uh, uh, meet with some, some journalists some reporters, you know, back in probably 2008. And I remember the first meeting I had, I don't even remember anymore who the reporter was, uh, but, um, he was using Evernote to, to take notes, um, and, you know, and he had been already kind of for a while. And so that was like, that was like, that was actually the first time I saw it kind of in the wild was somebody using it to write down, you know, interview questions with me. And so there's like, there's all sorts of moments like that that I remember being just super cool. The first time I actually really saw it in the wild, like out on the street, it was also in, I think it was on that same trip. I was in, I was in a Starbucks in Manhattan and, um, I was waiting in line to get a coffee and there was a guy in front of me in line who was like, I don't know, he looked like an important lawyer or something. He was wearing, you know, he was wearing a very nice suit and he was holding his phone. He had a Bluetooth headset and uh, he was holding his phone out in front of his face and he had Evernote on his, on his phone and he was like jabbing his finger into like something in Evernote and he was yelling at somebody <laughs> over the Bluetooth headset, like proving a point by like jabbing his finger into Evernote. And uh, it was the first time I'd actually seen like somebody use Evernote that, you know, I didn't know, that I didn't have any connection with. And I was going to like, I was standing right behind him. I was kind of going to kind of introduce myself, but he looked really angry. So <laughs> decided, he decided to just stand there meekly behind him. So what did you, what did you think? Like, what was the self-talk when you saw that? Did that trigger any, any particular thought or feeling in you to see it in the wild for the first time? I thought like at some point I should like work on a product to just like make people a bit more mellow. Like, <laughs> I have built something that enables people to yell at each other. That doesn't feel great. Maybe like, maybe we should build some kind of a, you should build something into the next version that chills people out. A mindfulness timeout. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there is that somewhat uh, related feature in, I think it's Siri. If you shake the phone as if you're trying to sort of rattle its brains, Mm -hmm. it it will, it might be Google Maps. I, I don't know which it is, but it's built into the iPhone. If you shake it, it will actually like ask you, in some in some way, I can't recall offhand, like what is wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think Google Maps maybe that's like it asks you if you want to submit like a like a support request or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of neat. Yeah. So, but but medit- like speaking of meditation. So another one is um, uh, uh, I met um, I met a group of of, of monks of Buddhist monks um, at uh, they with Plum Village. This is a, a Thich Nhat Hans uh, sure. monastery. And uh, I, I, oh, that's right. I went to I went to hear Thich Nhat Hanh speak a few years ago, uh, and I don't know I didn't know anything about about Zen at the time at all. It was just thought it would be interesting to kind of hear him. So I heard him speak, and he was there with sort of his entourage of of, of monks and nuns, and uh, it was all very very good, very peaceful. And then afterwards, he you know as soon as he left, I was surrounded by by the monks and nuns who were all saying how like they just run you know they run the monastery in Evernote. Uh, and, uh, you know, swapping use cases and it was all really neat. And so that's when I actually thought we should send someone over there to record some of their bells. So they have like these really beautiful, you know, ancient, 
uh, mindfulness bells, and I thought, okay, let's record them and actually kind of put them into Evernote as some kind of a anti-New York lawyer at a Starbucks yelling at somebody feature. But we haven't gotten around <laughs> to doing that yet, but any day now. That's amazing. His first book, uh, and I'm blanking on the name, I want to say it was Mindfulness is Every Step or something like that, Peace yeah. is Every Step perhaps, which was really intended almost like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations uh-huh. to be a notebook for himself and also yep. his close confidants and new attendees or teachers at Plum Village, right. which then later became a book. That was the first meditation book that really had a tangible, concrete impact on me because the storytelling and the narrative was so was so well done. Um, let's let's return back to the early days of of Evernote. When, when we could keep talking about you know Zen and Stoicism too, because we we I think we'll talk about both. Uh, right. But what I, what I'd love to do, and maybe this is in between, maybe it's a bridge between the two, is as a CEO, what CEOs did you admire or hope to emulate? when in the early days of Evernote? Because you have roughly how many users at the moment? Uh, about 150 million. Yeah, so that's a big number. That's a number that a lot of companies would aspire to, of course. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe growth separately. But as a CEO, you know, what types of leaders or CEOs did you admire and aspire to? Well, you know, there's so many that have been really generous with their time. Uh, uh, with me. I mean, that's really kind of the amazing thing about Silicon Valley is just how, kind of how open everyone's been. Um, so I was able to spend quite a bit of time talking with, you know, with people who were just, who just heroes of mine forever. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, um, was someone who's given me kind of fantastic, fantastic advice and guidance. Um, Hiroshi Mikatani, the, the founder and CEO of Rakuten is, one of the most amazing people ever. I, have you have you ever talked to him? I haven't. I would love uh, to. You got You should. He's that guy is crazy and like <laughs> in a really good way. Like very, very, very interesting. I know. You know. I know you have a a big Japan connection. So I do. Yeah, that'd, uh, be, a, that'd be a blast. Um, but you know, but I I I had a chance to 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 very briefly meet uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, I had a chance to. Uh, I actually spent quite a bit of time with with Mark Benioff, uh, who's been really you know, excellent, uh, in terms of advice and guidance. So it's been like, it's been pretty in, impressive. Um, probably the person that I kind of most want to be like when I grow up is, is Reed Hoffman. Uh, I'm just a huge fan of, of, of Reed and kind of the way that he thinks about things and, uh, how, how thoughtfully he's organized his life and his companies. Uh, it's just kind of very cool. So I'm lucky to, uh, to actually be able to, you know, spend some time with these people uh, from time to time. I do agree. I was actually just chatting with someone about the differences uh, between, say, New York and San Francisco, L.A. and San Francisco, and there are strengths and weaknesses to all of them. But the 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 ability to wander into a coffee shop or otherwise just get in touch with the what you would think would be the untouchables, the very, very well-known iconic figures is something that I haven't seen in many other places outside of Silicon Valley. Just the, the openness and availability that those people express, even though they're at the you know, multi-billion dollar in net worth mark. It's, uh, it's, very, it's very unique. I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, why, Absolutely. why do you think these people are so open to share what what makes 
the environment of Silicon Valley different or what makes the people who gravitate to it different? Well, I don't know that it's, I don't know that this is unique about Silicon Valley. I think we just have a larger concentration maybe of people like this, but, but they probably exist everywhere. I just think, you know, almost everyone here who is, uh, you know, who's successful, who's made, who's made it, quote unquote, who's well known, like remembers doing it, him or herself. Right. Like, like before they built this giant world changing multi-billion dollar thing, they hadn't done it either. Uh, and it, it isn't like it, it's not it's all like in sort of the recent past as well. Like virtually everyone who you re, who you know who I really admired like has gone from just being a normal person to bending the universe in a significant way in the last decade or two. Yeah. Um, as opposed to you know in in, in other places where a lot of uh, a lot of wealth is concentrated in people who you know sort of maybe have inherited part of it or who have kind of been in those circles for longer. This is very much a you know, scrappy, entrepreneurial, you know, a lot of, a lot of immigrant-led uh, communities, and, and everyone remembers before, before they were important, they weren't. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a healthy thing. I want to ask you a little bit about the folks that you interacted with. So mm -hmm. Be Bezos, for instance, um, yeah. he, he's a fascinating character on so many levels. I mean, yep. he very methodically chose books, pitched that with Indie Shaw, had it turned down <laughs> uh, and then turned it into the everything store. And when they started, they had, uh, as, uh, as I understand it, um, basically doors from the equivalent of Home Depot across yep. two file cabinets as desks. I mean, that's yep. how it, people started out. Yep. What, what did you, we did that in my first startup. We had, we, we, we made desks out of, out of, we made desks out of uh, unfinished doors and, 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 uh, what do you call those little construction horses? Oh, the sawhorses. Sawhorses, yeah. That was our, our first desks were all, yeah, we just bought doors at Home Depot and put them on sawhorses uh, <laughs> for no good reason. Turns out that's like harder and more expensive than just buying cheap desks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I just built this uh, side note pull-up rig out of uh, galvanized steel piping and plumbing supplies and whatnot. And it's just, at the end of the day, it cost particularly if you factor in the labor, it's like, okay, it was a fun project, but yeah. <laughs> probably would have been better use of capital just to buy a cheap rig, but uh, still fun in its own way. One of these days, uh, Tim, you have to like, you have to like coach me to be able to do a pull up. Like I would like to do a pull up once in my life. I will absolutely help you do that. And maybe we can pull in pa uh, Pavel Tatsulin, who like yourself is originally from the former Soviet Union. Uh, uh, now you were born in, I want to say St. Petersburg, but am I getting yeah. that right? Mm -hmm. Well, it was called Leningrad at the time, but yeah. Leningrad. And, uh, do you, sp I'm not going to quiz you, but do you still speak Russian? I do speak Russian. Yes. And with such a heavy, I'm not going to lose track of where we were with Bezos, but with, with <laughs> such, I want to come back to that, but with such a heavy Russian, uh, component in Evernote from the early days, how did that affect the company culture or growth or anything if it, all, uh, if it did i don't know if it did i don't you know i don't I, i'm not sure that it had a, that much of an effect you know the original team on Stepan's side were, were mostly russians uh i you know most of the people with me weren't there was a, there was a couple i don't really think of myself as particularly russian i was i was eight years old when we came over you know i learned english by watching uh what's happened in reruns and reading thor comic books um, I would have loved to have heard your English in the early days. 
Yeah, it turned out that 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 yeah, my, <laughs> my colloquial English came from Thor. Uh, I wasn't the most popular kid in in, in junior high school. <laughs> a lot of praise Odin talk, <laughs> but it was good for vocabulary development. All sorts of you know, forsooth. Um, <laughs> henceforth, right? henceforth, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, but uh, you know, we just we had a really great we had a really great team. I don't think there was anything particularly particularly Russian or not about the company. And certainly in Silicon Valley, there are like, I think, I'm sure this must be true, that most people who work at Evernote are from somewhere else. Uh, you know, I think we probably have more than 50% people born outside of this country. Um, there's just such a heavy immigrant, you know, community. Um, and we just, you know, we pull people from all over. We want to get the best people from everywhere in the world to, uh, to help us build a great product. Speaking of that process of building a great product, uh, or maybe not, what, what advice did you go to Bezos for? Or what were some of the questions you asked him or pieces of advice that he gave you, if you remember? Can I? Can, okay. The last thing he told me, this was only just like a few days ago, but it's changed my life again. Like basically every time I talk to Bezos, it like changes my life. Uh, the last one was, was just recently. And uh, it was kind of amazing. Not particularly relevant to the topic at hand, but, but super epically awesome anyway. So I've spent my entire life thinking that uh, I want to go to Mars. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Mars, 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 Mars. It was like on the Brady Bunch, right? Like, I just want to go to Mars. Um, I thought this was like the best thing ever. At some point, if I structure my life correctly, maybe I'll get to go. Like maybe like later on in life, I would totally agree to go, you know, to go one way because I think it's just so important for humanity to to be able to do that. I was just all into Mars and, uh, you know, talked to Elon a couple of times and, and, and just was vastly inspired by everything that, 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 that he's doing and what SpaceX is doing. And, um, um, I was listening to Elon speak, uh, last week or two weeks ago or something, talking about Mars and I was super inspired and, um, you know, ran into Jeff uh, Bezos a, a bit later and, and was kind of saying, oh, I, I, like, I just got to talk to Elon and I'm super excited about Mars. I really hope that one day I can go. And, and, and Bezos looks at me and goes, Mars is stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, once humanity, once we get off of, once we get off the planet, <clears throat> the last thing we want to do is, is go to another gravity well. Like the whole point, like the reason that this is so hard to get off the earth is to like defeat gravity the first time. Once we do that, why would you want to go to Mars? We should just live on space stations and mine asteroids and everything is much better than being on Mars. And in like 30 seconds, he had like completely changed the course of my life where, cause he's totally right. And I was like, what? <laughs> was, was this, was this like Mars. a midday conversation? Or was it was like a late night after a few drinks conversation. Um, it was after a few drinks. I'm not sure what time of day it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer so anyway so now so now i know that the future of humanity is to live on space stations and mine asteroids and uh, uh hopefully i'll get to do that at some point um uh, other advice that i've gotten from him has been a bit more practical all right well i'm not gonna i'll bite <laughs> what other advice well i mean the best thing that he's been at in terms of like actually building the company is just you know it's just scaling issues it's like uh you know, how do you deal with things when you're when you're 20 people? How does that change when you're 200? How do you think about going from 200 to 2,000 to 20,000? Um, it's all the the kind of the, the the growing pains, the life stages of the company. I mean, that that's what really occupies most of my attention professionally now. Um, this is also what Hiroshi Mikutani is fantastic at. Like, 
between between Mikatani-san and, and 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 Bezos, those are like you just get everything that you could possibly want to know about uh, about how to scale a company. Uh, and I've I've every chance I get to, to 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 actually pick their brain at it. That's usually what we're talking about when we're not talking about space stations and Mars and things like that. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've had in scaling Evernote? Well, uh, Mikatani-san says this really cool thing. He's got this law. It's like he calls it like the law of three and ten or something, which is basically that every single thing in your company breaks every time you like roughly triple in size. So uh, basically, like because he was the first employee at Rakuten, he was there. He was number one, and now they've got I don't know ten thousand or something or more. He said, when you're like the first person, when you're just one person, like everything kind of works. You've sort of figured it out, and then at some point you have three people, and now things are kind of different. Like making decisions and everything with three people is like different, but you adjust to that. And then you're fine for a while, and then you get to 10 people, and everything kind of breaks. But then you figure that out, and then you get to 30 people, and everything's different. And then 100, and then 300, and then 1,000. Um, so his, like, his hypothesis is that everything breaks at roughly this, like, this, these points of 3 and 10, roughly a tripling every size. Uh, and by everything, it means like everything, like you know, how, you, uh, how you handle payroll, uh, how, how you schedule meetings, um, what kind of communications you use, how you do budgeting, you know, who actually makes decisions. Like every implicit and explicit part of the company just changes significantly when it triples. Um, and his, his insight is um, a lot of companies get into huge trouble because of this. Um, so when you're a quickly growing startup, you get into huge trouble because you, you, you blow right through a few of these triplings without really realizing it. And, uh, and then you turn around and you realize that like, oh, like, like, you know, we're at 400 people now at Evernote. And when I really think about it, I'm like, okay, we're at 400 people now, but some of our processes and systems are, we set in place when we were 30. So we kind of skipped like a few steps and everything is like creaky and broken because of it. Whereas you really have to like, you really have to try to adjust. Uh, and so startups get in trouble because you, you kind of blow through these, 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 uh, these breakpoints really quickly. And so you should constantly be thinking about, perpetually be thinking about how to, how to reinvent yourself uh, and, and how to tweak the culture. But then big companies get in trouble for exactly the opposite reason. Because, uh, you know, let's say you get to, you know, 10,000 people in your company, like, and theoretically you figured out how to run things at 10,000. Well, your next big point isn't until 30,000, but you're probably not going to get to 30,000, you know, ever, or certainly not within a few years. Like it may take you know, a decade or more for a company to go from 10,000 to 30,000 people. But no one feels like waiting around for a decade or more to like reinvent yourself. And so uh. big companies are like constantly pushing all of this like bullshit, like innovation initiatives because they feel like, well, we have to do something. We have to do something. But they're not actually connected to any fundamental change in the company. They're, they're just kind of floating around by themselves. So by having this mismatch between like when things actually change and when you feel that you should actually redo everything, um, small companies get in trouble, big companies get in trouble, and just being mindful about that is is super eye opening. So that that was maybe like one of the most actionable pieces of advice that I got, and this was from from Hiroshi Mikatani at Rakuten. So the this is very interesting the 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 law of three and ten. Now the the tripling I get. Where does the ten come in? Oh, it's because otherwise it'd be three and nine. It'd be hard to do the math. <laughs> so he's just oh, he's just rounding up. He's basically oh, saying, like, I see, I see. like, three and then 10 and then 30 and then 100. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, you'd be, you'd be, you know, you'd have right, to be nine like, and 27 and so on. Yeah. Okay. Who, can, who can do that math? That's impossible. 
<laughs> oh man. The, um, have you ever, now I know you, you like myself, have a fondness for Japan. Have you ever seen someone trained, previously trained on an abacus as a kid, do mental mathematics? Yeah. It's so fascinating. I mean, because yeah. they, put their, they put their finger up in the air like they're moving beads. And I remember there was this kid on my judo team when I was in Japan as an exchange student for a year who could do, he could multiply three digit numbers. He could do pretty much whatever basic uh, arithmetic you would ask him to do by using this sort of imaginary abacus. So fascinating. Yeah. My grandmother was a, was a, was a bookkeeper, was an accountant, uh, in, you know, in the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, she was all, you know, it was all abacus training for her. And I just remember, uh, I remember when I was a kid, like she would, do math, and I yeah, I completely remember just being blown away by like kind of how that worked. Yeah, with the with the imaginary abacus, with with uh, Mikitani San's law of three and ten. In, in pragmatic planning terms, does that mean that you, as Phil at Evernote, would f- try to look ahead to anticipate when you would hit that tripling point, and then? seek out the new tools and processes that you would need beforehand? Yeah. We really try to. Uh, and But I also think like, so there's the whole tripling aspect, which I think is interesting. Uh, obviously, this is just, you know, it's just a framework. It doesn't really capture every nuance. But then it made me think about another thing, which I think is maybe even more important as to like how the world is changing now. Like important changes happen at times of, 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 of change. It sounded like a tautology. Um, <laughs> that's not how I meant to say it. Um, let me put it this way. So people will often ask, people often say to a, about a product like, oh, but that's, you're, you're really asking people or companies to like change their ingrained behavior. Like how long does it take to change ingrained behavior? Like we're saying, okay, email sucks. Like email's dead. You have to get off of email, uh, obviously. And a lot of people say, oh, but that's such ingrained change. Like how long will it take a company to, you know, to, to fundamentally get off of email? And um, I've been thinking about it like this. Um, every time you change jobs, it's like a very good opportunity to reevaluate sort of what works, what doesn't work, and try to be a little bit smarter the next time around. Every time you have like a major life change, like you change jobs or you move into a new house or whatever, uh, you know, you get married, like any, all of these stuff, all, all of these things kind of, are a really good opportunity to sort of take stock mentally and be like, ah, okay, right. we're going to, I've always wanted to do this a little bit better. Now's the time I'm going to do that. And so inside of companies, that's basically people changing jobs. And you can measure how long like a fundamental corporate um, change will take based on the, just the number of job cycles that it requires. So let's just say that like something as profound as like getting rid of email will take like three entire cycles of like people changing their, 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 their job. Um, but, and this explains like why things happen at such different paces in like in Silicon Valley versus in on the East coast versus in like Europe, because the tenure, the average tenure of professionals, of knowledge workers is, is really shrinking and is much shorter here than in lots of other places. You know, the average tenure of a Google employee right now is something like 1.1 years. Like the average person at Google has only been in the job for a little over a year. They're changing jobs all the time. I mean, and at Apple, it's only like two point something years. And at Evernote, it's a little bit longer, but not much. And so you're constantly having like everyone is basically acting like a, like a freelancer. Like everyone is, is doing a job, 
they don't think they're going to do it forever. They think they're going to do it for a couple of years, and then they're moving on to the next one. And that's happening, that's happening like crazy here in Silicon Valley, and it's starting to happen everywhere. And so if, you, if like a big change, let's just say hypothetically takes three job cycles, well, um, if the average job cycle is like a year and a half, then, okay, you know, within four or five years, the company is like completely changed this fundamental thing. Whereas if you're in Europe and the average job cycle is like 10 years, it may take him 30 years to get there. Hmm. So like a change that's obvious here within a few years may take, you know, may take decades in, in societies where, that, that, where people are just staying on board for much longer. And, but something that, takes like, something that takes four to five years in Silicon Valley probably takes 20 years in Europe, probably takes like a year in China. Right. It's like the, that cycle in China is crazy fast and compressed. Yeah, really um, is. So how, like, how do you plan that? And more importantly, we at Evernote are building software. We're building products for modern knowledge workers. How do we embrace this? Like, how do we build products for these types of people? Uh, and that's a very different idea than, you know, than Microsoft Office. Like, how do you build something that is meant for people who are, have a really compressed uh, job cycle, who think of themselves as, as freelancers, even if they're part of a company, uh, and how do you make that great? Like instead of trying to pass judgment on this and saying that's a bad thing and trying to hold it back, how do you actually embrace it and how do you try to make it more awesome? And that's, that's a big animating force of, of, of how we're thinking about things. How different is the current Chinese version of Evernote compared to, say, the U.S. version? Uh, it's, it's the same. Um, it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's minor differences in, you know, like payment methods and stuff like that. So we run... China is the only place where we run a totally separate version. So we, you know, we have a version of, of Evernote that we call the uh, Inchan BG, which basically we, we kind of cloned ourselves in China. Everyone told us like, oh, you, you know, if you go to China, you're just going to get cloned. So we said, all right, let's just clone ourselves. So we made a full clone of Evernote that we run ourselves that's, you know, separate data centers, separate servers. And uh, other than some minor things around how, how we interact with payment methods and stuff like that, it's, it's exactly the same. I appreciate the separate data centers. <laughs> well, that, yeah. that, that's important. That's important yeah. for, you know, for a bunch of reasons, for both for performance as well as for just sort of giving people a choice as to where they keep their data. So, yeah. Now, let's, let's talk for a second about uh, Reid Hoffman, and then I uh -huh. want to come back to some of your personal productivity habits. But Reid, Reid is a very interesting... That's my laziest adjective I can use here. He's a uh, interesting. He's a compelling character. Uh, I've, yeah. I've had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him, and we're both involved in a nonprofit called QuestBridge. And uh, he is he is such a cool as a cucumber sort of philosopher king in the minds of so many people in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes Reed unique? What are the things that make him, that draw you to him, or that uh, that that you find fascinating about him? Well, uh, you know, I mean, bef well before I like actually got to know him, I was I was listening to him, I was reading, you know, his stuff. So I, I mean, I was just attracted to the to the ideas. Like he just has a very, like, to me, it's it, it's the exactly the right balance of kind of big picture, you know, philosophically oriented ideas that are really grounded and practical and that you can, you know, that, that, that you can apply. Uh, I really liked the thinking behind LinkedIn and kind of what it represented. Um, so it, it was the, 
it was the it was the strength of the ideas and 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 having exactly the right mixture of kind of lofty and and practical. What else? There's, uh, are there any or any particular examples that jump out at you, or any advice that he's given you, or questions you've asked of him? Well, you know, we talk a lot about about um, company scaling, and we talked a lot. You know, he made a decision fairly early on that he didn't want to be the CEO of, 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 uh, of the company. And he brought in actually a couple of people. Jeff is the second person that, that, that he wound up bringing on and that that's worked out great. And so I've talked to him a lot about, you know, what is like, what is that like? Like, how do you, what's the right amount of letting go? What is the, what is the, you know, the right amount of, of, of staying involved? How do you really think about that? And that, and he's been kind of my main, uh, guide through this. I mean, there's been a lot of other people I've talked to as well, but, but Reed is kind of the person that I'm most looking to emulate. Um, his thoughts around, you know, really starting with PayPal, um, have been super influential. The, the what, best, what, I think, oh, I'm sorry, th- go ahead. I think the best thing that I've, that, I, that I've read from him is actually more recent. It was his, his, uh, le- last book, uh, the Alliance, uh, which really like has sharpened my thinking significantly around this exact idea that we just talked about, this idea of having a relationship between companies and employees that's more honest and that's about, um, recognizing what the actual new realities of the world are and trying to embrace them. And he's writing this book really from a kind of an HR perspective. I really read it as a, as a product design perspective. I read it oh, as that's interesting. how do we make products for this reality. Uh, and, that, and that's been, that's been really hugely influential. Plus, he's just a super nice guy. Yeah, he, uh, he is. He has a very different energy from almost all the other folks in the PayPal mafia uh and that's not to in any way denigrate them but he he has he doesn't seem to have the same sharp edge that a lot of those other guys do obviously he's very intelligent and has uh, an extremely incisive intellect but when you sit down with him he has a much more relaxed energy if that makes sense right uh to what would you attribute that i mean and i mean he does have no, uh, i did- I attribute that to like the extreme edginess and sharpness of the rest of those guys. <laughs> Thank you. You put anyone in contrast with, uh, uh, you know, with the rest of the well-known people there and like, everyone's going to seem, anyone's going to seem pretty much like <laughs> you, Tim Ferriss, like in a room next to, you know, Elon and Roloff and Max and people like that is going to seem super <laughs> mellow and chill. So, All right. That's a good, good point. <laughs> so that works. Uh, now you, you mentioned philosophy a bit earlier and you, and you, you mentioned stoicism. Read of course. Did I, maybe I, okay. Maybe I sort of recursively incepted myself. Uh, the Reed has quite a philosophy background as I understand it. I I think he, he studied philosophy at Oxford after his Stanford Uh experience. Uh, are you religious or philosophical? I mean, are there any particular schools of philosophy or trains of thought in religion that you have as a use as a framework in your life? Um, I'm not, so I'm not particularly religious, uh, in the sense I'm not, you know, I'm not theistic. Uh, I, I am very interested in having a coherent philosophy of life, like a, a, a coherent structure that basically says like, here is, you know, here is why you should bother living and here is what you should try to accomplish. And here is, uh, uh, here's what it all means. Uh, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people come, come to that from a religious background. Some people come to it from a philosophical background or a practical background. 
But I, th- I think it's important, at least for me, to just to, to think about overall structure and to have a coherent philosophy of life. So I've been, uh, I've been looking for that for, for a while. How do you go about looking for it? And what ha- have you found any pieces of it? A little bit. Um, uh, you know, mostly I just, you know, I read a lot and I kind of have been. I was a, um, you couldn't tell this by talking to me now, but I, I was kind of a strange kid growing up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I sort of became fixated uh, by, um, by the end of the world as, as, as a kid. Uh, I remember, um, I don't know why, uh, I remember the first, like I was really, really intrigued and kind of obsessed as a little kid with this idea <coughs> of, of how the world's going to end. And um, my, the first movie I ever saw, um, I was six, it was in Russia, and my father took me to see this movie in a movie theater. That was a, I was this like little, like r- super nerdy, impressionable, you know, six-year-old kid. And my, my dad took me to see um, this Japanese horror movie called Legend of the Dinosaur, which was about like dinosaurs, like coming back to life. <laughs> That's the people. most Japanese title ever. I love yeah, it. Yeah, Legend of Dinosaur. <laughs> and uh, this was just like extremely bad parenting. Like seriously, I don't know what he was thinking. And, uh, you know, and I couldn't sleep for like, for like a month afterwards. I was like too terrified to sleep because it's like I thought the world was going to end because dinosaurs were going to come back and bite all of us in half. That's what Beetlejuice like, did to my brother. That's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember one, one day, like I just, one night I was, you know, lying in bed, I couldn't sleep. And I think my dad kind of got tired of me not sleeping. So he came over and I remember he, you know, he sat on my bed and he's like, Hey, what, you know, what are you afraid of? What, like, what, what are you worried about? And I said, well, dad, uh, to be honest with you, I'm afraid that the world's going to end because, you know, dinosaurs are going to come back and and bite all of us in half. Um, and he said, look, uh, like in hindsight, I shouldn't have taken you to see that movie. Um, you don't have to worry about it. Dinosaurs are definitely not going to come back. The world is, is definitely not going to end with dinosaurs coming back and, and eating us. You know, the world's going to end the nuclear war. Um, <laughs> Thanks, <and> dad. Because <laughs> that, you know, that's what everyone thought. I mean, this was like, this was, I don't know, late seventies in, in, in the Soviet union. Um, and that's kind of what everyone thought. And then we moved to the U S and that's what everyone thought here. And so I've been kind of thinking about like, what is the meaning of life and what is like, what happens when things end? And if things are going to end, like what, what's the purpose of having a purpose? Uh, and I just, you know, read a lot of Thor comics and, and, and then went on to maybe, you know, somewhat more serious things in, in, in high school and in college and, got into that. And I, I think I'm starting to piece things together. I think I have a, a generally sunnier disposition towards life. And I think I have inklings of, of what meaning is, but I'm not sure I, under, I know completely. Uh, I am more recently, I've been reading a lot of, of stoicism stuff. So you said Marcus Aurelius and a few others. So I think that's like, that's going to be the new trendy. I'm calling it right here. This is going to be the new trendy thing in Silicon Valley. Like Zen was sort of like last year's thing. <laughs> the new the new zen is going to be stoicism um yeah. it's it, it would have gone like zen and then macarons and then stoicism it was like Wait, a diversion well, did you say macaroons what was the second one macarons yeah fancy macaroons oh yeah. wow macarons yeah. that's taking macarons. it to a maybe level. like toast like artisanal toast is also big so <laughs> Maybe it goes like Zen and then artisanal toast and now and then stoicism. <laughs> but you're going to hear more and more about stoicism being like the hip new philosophy coming uh, out of here. I agree. I agree. I've been uh, trying to do my part with the proselytizing of, of stoicism, which in and of itself is kind of ironic. But the um, artisanal toast, if you ever go to Inokashira Park in Tokyo, they have an artisanal toast coffee shop set up in the park where they have panda faces burnt into the sides of the toast that you can buy. It's, it's fantastic. 
Panda faces and artisanal are not not two concepts that go together usually, but well, so but wait, in Japan what, they can pull it off. Hold on a second. So, what image would it have to be, if not pandas, or is it imageless? Does it have to have some type of like brand on it, or how do you how do you envision artisanal toast? I think it just has to be you know like perfectly toasted. I don't you know it shouldn't be. It should be a no logo. Ah, it's like the fifteen minute pour over of toast. That's right. Well, the best toast <laughs> best toast in the world is in Singapore. Uh, it's Kaya toast. So you get like you get these thick slabs of of, of toast um, spread with uh, butter and kaya. Kaya is like this like sweet coconut spread, and then you dip it into really runny soft boiled eggs, and you have uh, pulled coffee. So this coffee that they pour over like six feet uh, in front of you. Oh, that's the best. Over six feet? Is it like a Game of Thrones pour from across the room, like Chinese Basically. style? That's amazing. yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. Wow. So you get this like really aerated coffee. Uh, sweet toast dipped into runny eggs. Best thing ever. I'm just imagining this Willy Wonka like chocolate, uh, or chocolate colored coffee waterfall that you put stick your mug into. I'm not sure that's the proper image, but it does give me some ideas. So the uh, let's step outside of Evernote for a second. Uh, what are the most used apps on your phone besides uh- Evernote? Um, well, so basically, so to me, Evernote doesn't really feel like an app. Like I use, you know, I use like, I think of, you know, email messaging, you know, web and Evernote as kind of like the same order of things. Uh, so like it doesn't, it doesn't even feel like I'm using an app when I use it. I'm just, you know, I'm just using it. Uh, I use, you know, so I, I use a bunch of the messaging apps. Um, really kind of to test them out, to sort of see, see how things are going, see what's, see what's impressive, where are the good ideas coming from. But again, even there, they don't really feel like, like apps. In fact, this is probably the thing. It's like things that I use all the time, I don't think of as apps. Like I don't think of Uber as an app. Like I use Uber quite a bit. Yeah. Um, doesn't really feel like an app to me. Is it a utility or what is the, how do you, how do you compartmentalize app? What does that, what does that feel like when you do use an app? It's like a service, I guess. Um, so I, one, of my, one of my product hypotheses is that apps are, like, apps are going away. The concept of an app is going to become a lot less in, important in a few years than it is now. So like this, this whole idea that you like page through screens of stuff to pick something you want to use, like that, that, that's a short-term concept. That's only, it's only going to be, have been with us for a decade or so, and then it'll, it'll vanish. What, and it'll be replaced with this concept of just you know, experiences, services. So you know, Amazon... I mean, I use the Amazon app. I don't think of it as an app. I use Netflix, but that's not an app. Uh, like one things that have just become these like permanent fixtures in my life. They're fixtures, but they're not. They're not apps. And I use them. I'll use them everywhere. I'll use them on a phone. I'll use them on the web. I'll use them on my watch. You know, at some point on my glasses, whatever. Um, in terms of like discrete apps that I use on the phone, um, a, a lot of games. I. I, I I mostly just uh, like all of the specific small things on my phone just tend to be games that I'm trying out. What are your favorite games? Uh, I go through them pretty fast. Like right now, like, you know, for the past couple of days, I've been playing uh, Radical Repelling, which is, you know, what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Repelling, like repelling down the side of a rock face? Yeah, you like repel down the side of a rock face and you get power ups and Try try to avoid running into spikes and like drink cans of highly caffeinated beverages that give you bursts of energy. It's it's very it's very much like real life. 
Um, <laughs> Before and, that, I was kind of into Goat Simulator. So Goat Simulator on iPhone is pretty good. It's the best. It's definitely the best Goat simulation that you can get on your <laughs> iPhone. And do you use these games to decompress? Have you always been a gamer? Yeah, I have. Um, I usually play. I used to play a lot more like computer games. Uh, now I don't have quite as much time. Um, although I did recently start playing Elite Dangerous, which is kind Elite of a, Dangerous. Elite Dangerous. Yeah, it's it's probably the greatest game, maybe thing ever made. Uh, um, <laughs> elite, and, like and Elite like, Force, but then Dangerous, the adjective. Yes, okay. yes, it's a space game. Uh, just came out and amazing and 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 like like Jeff Bezos, it basically envisions a a world where humans are everywhere in space, but but mostly living on space stations, mining asteroids, not really going down to planets. So, hmm. sort of two two factors for that. How 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 far away are we? Do you think from mining asteroids? Because I know there's, for instance, planetary resources, which uh, Peter Diamandis is involved with. Brian Johnson is an investor. A couple of other folks. A lot of the uh, uh, sort of zero gravity guys are involved um, with planetary resources, which is focused specifically on mining precious materials off of asteroids. When, yeah. do, you, when do you think we'll we'll actually be? Fully well, I, you know, I, in I full don't swing. Know. It's really hard to say. I think like the most important thing to nail first is the um, reusable, like repeatable uh, uh, launch vehicles, and that and tourism is probably going to get us there before before mining does. Um, so I'm actually kind of a big fan of a lot of the, a lot of the, the space tourism efforts like Virgin Galactic and a few others, just because I think, not because I think it's particularly great to, you know, send people into low orbit. I mean, that's fine. But I think like we need to, we need to get the reusable, uh, rockets and launch vehicles going as much as possible. And that'll really unlock everything else. And I think like, so I think we'll have pretty good repeatable reusable launch vehicles within, you know, five years, but then how long does it go from there to asteroid mining? Uh, I don't know. That could be decades, um, especially since like, it doesn't really make sense to mine asteroids and then ship the results back to Earth. Like, it probably makes sense to actually just move industry into space. So you should be mining asteroids and building things in space stations. And the only things that should be coming back to Earth is basically you know, data. Like, we should be getting you know, fast internet connectivity from space, and, and that's about it. Like, everything else should just be being made hmm. you know, up there. So that's, but that's... you know. A, above my pay grade. B, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And C, probably a few decades away. So uh, let, let's continue talking about things at least above my pay grade, uh, but uh, still might be within yours, I think. the If you were looking at the end of the world, the things mm-hmm. that could eradicate the human race from the face of Earth, uh, aside from us leaving in some Elysium-type fashion... Uh, what would you where what would you put in the top sort of three positions as well, probable causes of human extinction, and would AI be anywhere in that list? Well, so probably not dinosaurs. So I think I've like <laughs> I've gotten over that. Um, I you know, so I'm not afraid of AI. I really think the AI debate is a little bit uh, it's it's kind of over dramatized, and to be honest with you, I kind of find it weird. And I, I find it weird for several reasons, but including this one. It's like, there's this hypothesis like, okay, we're going to build super intelligent machines and then they're going to get exponentially smarter and smarter. And like, so they're going to be basically be much smarter than us. And these like super smart machines are going to make the logical decision that like the best thing to do is to kill us. And that just doesn't like, I feel like there's a couple of steps missing in that, like in that chain of events. Like, I don't understand why 
the obviously smart thing to do would be to kill all the humans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the smarter I get, the less I want to kill all the humans. <laughs> Why wouldn't these like really smart machines not want to be helpful? Like, what is it? What is it about our guilt as a species that makes us think that like the smart thing to do would be to kill all the humans? Like, I think that actually says more about like what we feel guilty about than than what's actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if we really think that, like, a smart decision would be to wipe out humanity, like, it's maybe more useful to, instead of, like, trying to, like, prevent AI, maybe it's more useful to think about, like, okay, what are we so guilty about? And let's, like, let's fix that. Like, can we, can we maybe get to a point where we feel proud of our species and say, like, maybe the smart thing to do isn't, wouldn't be to wipe it out? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of, like, important issues that are being I don't know, sublimated into the uh, into the AI will kill all humans discussion that are probably worth pulling apart and tackling independently. Um, so yeah, I'm just like I'm not I'm not overly concerned about it. Um, I do think that it's worth taking seriously. Um, I think AI is going to be one of the greatest forces for good in you know in the universe that the universe has ever seen, and it's it's pretty exciting that we are actually making progress uh, towards it. And what uh, so if not AI, what would you put at the top of the list? Does anything come to mind as as if if the human race were to extinguish itself or be mm-hmm. extinguished in the next say twenty years? What are the most likely causes in your mind? Well, you know, there's, so there's there's interesting groups right that work on this. There's all there's the sort of the existential threats groups, and you know they've got all sorts of all sorts of good theories. I think it's extremely unlikely that the, that the human race gets extinguished in the next 20 years. Uh, I, think you, I think there's like, you can basically isolate this into short-term risks, which are all self-inflicted. Like, there's a bunch of self-inflicted risks, like, you know, nuclear war, which is probably still, you know, a risk. Now, it's not going to wipe out all humanity, but it could, it could, it could set us back, uh, you know, quite a bit. Um, and there's other, you know, there's like climate change is a serious issue, but it's not going to result in wiping out humanity it might result in a lot of displacement and a lot of economic cost um you know there's there's global pandemics which again kind of by their definition you know a a a super flu isn't going to wipe out humanity but it could be really bad it could kill a lot of people uh so there's a lot of these like sort of self-inflicted risks which i think it's important to get a lot better at uh at at dealing with and then there's the real long-term stuff which Obviously, at some point, will wipe out everything on Earth. But we're talking about, you know, millions of years uh, or even billions of years. You know, asteroid impacts. Uh, you know, the sun exploding, supernova, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only real solution there is to, at some point, we do need to become a multi-planet species. So, you know, no, no big rush. We don't all need to like rush towards the exits. But it is, it is kind of neat to actually be working on things that will enable us, at some point, to, you know, spread out a bit. Steve, well, I think uh, among other people, I mean, Stephen Hawking has said pretty clearly, as I understand it, that uh, f- for us to survive, we have to become multiplanetary yeah. uh, or extraplanetary, maybe at the very least. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And but uh, you know, it's also an interesting question: is, is what what is what is us, right? So it's plausible that like things that that are that look like biological human beings actually never live at scale outside of the planet, but other things we create, um, you know, other intelligences and consciousness that, that, that we create actually might, might actually be able to spread among the stars. And that's kind of cool too. Like I, I, I think it's an elegant idea. 
um, there's you know, a very cool science fiction short. It's an animated short, which is actually also very funny. Uh, I think it's about 16 minutes, uh, called the world of tomorrow, which is worth checking out. It digs into a lot of this. So as a, as a side note, that's a, that's a fun watch. You mentioned Netflix. Uh, do you have any favorite documentaries? Oh yeah. Uh, I have a bunch. Um, you know, I really liked, uh, there was one that I just saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was really good. Uh, I think it was called the gatekeepers. It was like, it was all the living heads of the, the Shin Bet, the Israeli secret service, just kind of talking very frankly about, um, you know, about life, about, about, about war, about peace. Uh, and it was just kind of, kind of startling. You have these, you know, I think it was like eight of them who wound up running, you know, they were the top kind of military and spy people in Israel and all of them like have had have gone like all of them were saying things that I think later in life uh, they've they've all like moved much more towards reconciliation and peace and and and, and dialogue and it was just as fascinating uh, fascinating to hear. Uh, I watch a lot of um, I watch a lot of science documentaries, so I was a big fan of the uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's you know Cosmos sure. reboot. That was great. I, I watched all of you know the Carl Sagan version uh, a while ago. The thing that I just saw yesterday, which I didn't actually watch, I just I, I logged in, I, I signed into Netflix yesterday, and saw them promoting this. I didn't even know they made it, but I guess there's a new documentary about James Randi called like An Honest Liar or something, which I've I've now got queued up. I think I'm probably going to watch that tonight. I'm a huge James Randi fan. Uh, and I didn't even know they made a movie about him, so I'm really looking forward to that. In fact, the very first. The very first things that I ever bought on the internet, like my first e-commerce transaction, I have a screenshot of it. It was on Amazon. It was in 1996, and it was uh, two books by James Randi. So, like the the first things I ever bought online were my the first two James Randi books I ever read. Was also the first time I ever used Amazon. So it was like it was like several important firsts for me that I've got I've got a screenshot in Evernote. And I actually met James Randi afterwards, and I had him sign my screenshot in Evernote. So it was sort of a uh, Five levels of dorkiness in there, but I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah, is this James Randi the magician, or which James Randi? Yeah, oh. yeah, the amazing Randi, James Randi, the magician slash you know debunker uh, slash skeptic. Sort uh, of the, in the same vein as Penn and Teller, would you say? Yeah, he's sort of like he's kind of maybe the 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 father of of, of all this, of sort of like the modern sort of pro science and skeptical movement. Um, but yeah, so so a little bit. A, a little similar to Penn and Teller stuff, although James Randi doesn't do a whole lot of like magic debunking. Right. It's more about science teaching and uh, quackery. I'm looking yeah, online yeah, like, here. Yeah. It says he has a TED talk called uh, "It's Randi R A N D I," and the yeah. title of his talk is "Homeopathy, Quackery, and Fraud." <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of so a lot of stuff like that, and uh, and I haven't actually seen the documentary, so I don't know if it's any good. I probably is. Uh, I just I, I remember seeing uh, yesterday that it was on Netflix and going, oh, as soon as I have. A spare two hours. I'm going to watch it. We should probably be tonight. Do you have any favorite non-documentary movies? Um, well, you know, the best movie ever made is is The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I know, I know. It's your mug. So that's that. That is that your favorite of the Star Wars series? Yeah. Well, that's objectively the best one. <laughs> it's not really up for debate. Now, uh, was it the Tauntauns that pushed it over? What? Oh, what? so much. It was so much stuff. Uh, it's just. A, it's just. It, it's just a really good movie. I actually, I've seen it. 
I just I watched it again uh, recently, right? Because uh, they just released like the, the digital versions of all all six movies, and so I just watched the the good three again. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's just great. Everything about it. I, I, right, the cool. middle, you know, the middle movies of trilogies are usually the best ones because they think like the first movie, you know, the director is still like trying to, you know, a, they're trying a little bit too hard. You know, they have to like prove themselves, and then by the third one, they've got to wrap things up. But the second one is like it, the pacing is different. It's sort of the intermediate thing. It, it has this like sense of continuity, but also more to come. Like there's everything about like that. The middle part usually is good. Like I think the two towers was the best Lord of the Rings movie and so on. But 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 return. Uh, but Empire Strikes Back in particular was just like super strong. So uh, but I also watch, you know, I don't I don't watch too much TV. Um, I, uh, I used to watch Top Gear. Um, but I guess that's canceled. Yeah. So, uh, and then, um, you know, I binge watched, uh, House of Cards and Game of Thrones. Although I haven't, I haven't watched the, the last season of Game of Thrones yet. I'll, I'll, I just binge watched it, uh, this last week. It's uh, good. I won't, I won't give you any spoilers. It's, it's, uh, it's, it has a, uh, it very much has a herky jerky upper and downer effect, which I think is very intentional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's the series is really good. Uh, I, I've read all the books, and and I know that the last the last season supposedly de- departs from some of the books a little bit. So I'm I'm interested to see uh, how that goes. Do you, uh, well, actually, before I give the the notebook question, um, not about the movie with um, that very beautiful woman and blanking on her name, not that one, but actual physical notebooks. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Uh, what do you? Th- are you attracted to Ryan Gosling? No, that's my real question. No, the the uh, do, do, <laughs> he's dreamy. He is dreamy. What book have you gifted most to other people, or books? Um, probably um, the Clock of the Long Now by uh, Stuart Brand mm-hmm. uh, is maybe the most influential books. Maybe the most influential book on me. So it's this is um, so. Uh, you know, the Long Now Foundation. That's with Danny, uh, about the clock and Danny Hillis? Yeah, Danny Hillis and Stuart Brand um, are kind of the co-founders. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of other people involved. And so this is the, this is the organization that's building a 10,000-year clock in, like, in the, in the middle of a mountain. Uh, and they're also preserving, like, all human languages. It's, it's an organization that's dedicated to long-term thinking. Um, like, how do you actually make plans for, you know, 10,000 years? Which sort of sounds crazy, but, you know, but it isn't. And if we can't make plans for 10,000 years and no one else is going to. Um, and so, uh, Stuart brand, who is just this amazing guy. I was lucky enough to actually, I invited him to speak at our last conference and he, you know, he agreed. So it was kind of amazing just to introduce him on stage. Um, incredible wrote, guy. Yeah. Yeah. Co- so he wrote, I think he was creator, a co-creator of the whole earth catalog way back in the day for those people who remember. Yep. The whole earth catalog and, and, and the well, which one of the first, you know, internet discussion sites and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and so his book is the, um, the clock of the long now, and it just talks about, you know, the principles and the foundation. And it's, it's a very short read, but in particular, there's one chapter of it, which is for me, it was really like sort of life changing. Um, I think it's called like the layers of civilization. And it basically just talks about, um, the six or seven layers of, of society and kind of how they interact with each other. And, uh, it kind of explains, like it puts the structure of explaining, almost everything that you'd ever wondered about in like just a few pages in like wow. one diagram. So, uh, it's really affected me 
I read it, you know, I read it when I was pretty young, and, 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 and like, I've been kind of going back to it every so often. So, the, the clock of the long now, uh, I've given it lots of times, definitely. Couldn't recommend it more highly. That, and I'd also highly recommend people check out the Long Now Foundation. It's, it's an incredible group of people. Kevin Kelly's very involved as well, and is a way to telescope out and even do thought experiments solo, uh, related to 10,000 year thinking, for instance, it's a really fascinating website to check out. Uh, yeah. they, they also have a, uh, a bar at, uh, yeah. in San Francisco that I, I, I contributed to for their Kickstarter campaign. No, me too. Uh, I Indi- got one Indiegogo. of the whiskey bottles. Oh, you did. I haven't, yeah. visited, I haven't been there yet. Oh, I, it's beautiful. I, the I interval. Yeah, exactly. The interval. Yeah. It's at Fort Mason. Super nice. Yeah. I've heard it's, it's just gorgeous. Uh, now when I go to, whether it's a coffee shop or a bar, I almost always have a small moleskin or moleskine, I don't know how to say it properly, notebook with me. I, I have a lot of trouble separating myself from physical note-taking. Uh, do you use, personally, physical notebooks? I do, yeah. That was uh, weird intonation on the question, sorry. <laughs> it sounded more like a sta- <laughs> Do you use physical notebooks as a statement? Uh, but uh, sorry to interrupt. I do. Yeah. What do you use them for, and why don't you do everything digitally? Um, well, it is digital. So um, our our partnership with Moleskin is is you know we, we can use a well any notebook or a Moleskin notebook just works strictly well since we've optimized our software for it, and uh, you just write and then take a picture in Evernote of the page, and it automatically gets cleaned up and indexed and scanned and kind of put in context with everything else, and so just the best of both worlds. Like it lets you be discreet and unobtrusive and 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 kind of take notes. And uh, and then immediately have them available digitally for searching and in reference and sharing. So it, it, it's um, um, you know we're trying to combine the best of we're trying to give people great experiences without being pedantic about you know what has to be digital, what has to be physical. We really want we really want to blend those two things. I think um, the best products are made when you know you take into account the physical world when you take into account you know how things feel like and how heavy they are and where you put your hands and it's kind of the same if you're designing ipad software or if you're actually designing a physical notebook you, you have to think about these things and it's important for us to think about them and to to try to make beautiful experiences that combine those things what do you uh, what types of things do you personally put into your physical notebook before well, scanning them into evernote so there's a there's a little trick um <laughs> i guess i haven't actually told this to anyone before so here's how this works you know how if you're in a meeting and um you've got your laptop open mm-hmm. and you're like, taking notes in your laptop it's like the like that's a little that sort of creates a barrier between you and 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 uh and the other people and it sometimes feels like a little bit uh like a little bit distant a little bit intimidating definitely um, we actually make stickers that say i'm i am like I'm not being rude. I'm taking notes in Evernote that you can stick on the back of your laptop to to solve that problem. Cool. Um, uh, so, or you can use a phone. But if you use a phone in a meeting with someone, then it, it just kind of looks like you're not paying attention to them. Like all of the dynamics are that you're like texting, distracted. Yeah. yeah, even if you're taking notes. But if you use a notebook, if you like write in a notebook while you're talking to someone, they feel like, man, this person really cares about me. Like it totally like flips the odometer the other way. Like you are signaling like deep caring and interest if you just like scribble in a notebook while talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like even if you're like even if you're just like drawing you know houses and clouds and unicorns, 
as long as <laughs> like big, yeah. big Lebowski style. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like <laughs> the key to like making it look like you are really like paying attention and connecting with someone is just to like have an open notebook and occasionally like nod and like write something down. Um, so that's, you know, that works super well. So I would say when I'm in meetings, uh, maybe like a third of the time I'm actually like, you know, taking notes. Um, and, uh, what I'll do is I'll just write specific words or phrases that, uh, I know if I see later, will actually like pop the whole meeting into my head. Yeah. You're writing down the, the cues. Yeah, exactly. Cues. And, and, and they're not even like necessarily the most important words. They're just, yeah, they're just cues. Uh, so like I may, I may write down like in this conversation, I may have, I may have like write down like, you know, Lebowski, <laughs> that, like, that was important, but like that will, I know that if I saw that later and I saw that that was like on my timeline and never know it at the same time that I had this conversation, uh, with Tim and you know, it's linked to you and all of our other stuff like that word will just trigger this, this memory and it'll, it'll come out. So I use it for that. I use it for, for, for queuing in a way that doesn't create this barrier between me and the other person. And in fact, not just doesn't create the barrier, it actually like, it actually makes us feel closer and it makes people think that, uh, that, uh, I'm really paying attention. Which you are, right? Which I am. Yeah. All the yeah. time. And the, uh, process after that, I'd love to ask about how often do you then scan those into your Evernote? Do you use your phone to take the photograph? Do you tear them out and, and put them through a machine? Um, uh, I, no, I always what use normal people call a scanner. <laughs> yeah. You always use your phone. <laughs> I always use my phone. Yeah. Uh, well I use the, I use the scanner. I use the Evernote scanner when I have like a stack of documents. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, if I'm if for business cards and for, and for, uh, handwritten notes, I always use my phone and it's important to do it as close as possible to the time and, and place of the meeting. Cause then you get all the, all the association. So, you know, basically before, before I get up, I'll just take a picture and then I know I have it. I know it's time stamped. It's, 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 it's geo stamped. It's associated with the calendar entry. Like basically everything works great if you do it right there. Uh, business right. card and, and handwritten notes. Uh, if you wait, you know, if you wait until you get to the office, like you, you lose all that context. It's just right. Not, I never, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I never even thought about that because you're, you're not only losing the context, you're creating false signals mm-hmm. because you could be throwing it off. And if you look into your calendar to see why that was associated with a given time, then you're actually creating a uh, conflict. Yeah. Like if I, if I'm meeting with you, especially if it's in my calendar and I take a picture of, uh, let's say I get your business card and I take a picture of that and never know that'll automatically get all your contact info and look you up on LinkedIn and whatever. And then let's say I take some handwritten notes and I take a picture of that, the, 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 the handwritten notes will be automatically titled in Evernote, you know, note from meeting with Tim Ferriss. And your business card will, ha- will have your name and, you know, everything associated with it. So if I did it right there, I've got all of this stuff. And so the next time I search for, you know, the next time I, I, I you know, write something about you or search for you, I'm going to get all that stuff coming up. And I'm going to see, I'm going to see my note. I'm going to see your contact info. I'm, and then I'm going to see all of the, you know, any like business articles that have come out about you and any of our publisher partners. So it's like, it, if you do it, if you do it right away, you're just, you're, you're really capturing a very strong signal that not only will you use like right there, but it'll, it'll make every subsequent access of this information richer. Hmm. When you think you mentioned a couple of names earlier, obviously Bezos, uh, Mikitani, Benioff, uh, mm-hmm. Hoffman, what, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind? Wow. I, uh, I don't know. 
I don't know if my mind works like that. Uh, what do you mean? I, I, you just said successful, and I just like I did. Like, I didn't. I didn't like pop into a, you know, into a person. Uh, I think I like I, I immediately flashed on product. Like the first thing, the first thing that popped into my mind when you said successful was 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 iPhone. And, uh. Uh, Kind of crazy, but yeah, I guess I don't really, I guess I don't really think of people as successful. That's hmm. that's a very, that's a new answer. I like this. So let's explore that. Why why the iPhone? Well, maybe it's more like why not people? Because I guess I don't really think of success being as being like the most interesting characteristic of a person. Mm-hmm. Right, like a lot of success is luck. Right. Agreed. Uh, in fact, I think that like anyone who's been successful, even a little bit, has also been lucky. Um, I, you know, luck is not, and, 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 and like, when I say luck, I mean luck, I mean like random occurrence. I don't mean like some like mystical, you know, you make your own luck, anything like there's a strong element of, of, of fortune, of random chance to, to personal success. And then of course, there's also a ton of hard work and really having to, you know, maximize it. Um, and so tons of people deserve to be successful because they're super smart and interesting and work hard and they just haven't had the luck. So to me, like whether or not a person is successful or not isn't isn't the most interesting thing about that person. I really care much more about their ideas and and you know how much how interesting or fun they are. Um, so I guess I, I tend I tend to think more about like about things about products that are successful, like you know like iPhone, and that's that also has an element of luck, but much less. I think you know that's much more about really great design and smart planning and great execution and and you know things that are that are more, more predictive of and more interesting than applying that measure to people. Well, let's make it more general. And maybe this is, this will be an equally difficult or misdirected question, but which historical figure do you most identify with? If any historical figure, uh, wow. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> okay. So I'm, I, I'm conscious. I'm, I want to be sensitive to not like sounding like I am like, I, I don't want this to come across as, as false modesty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you going to give me Winnie the Pooh or what? what to wear with? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the thing is like, I actually don't think about myself that much mm. and, and I'm being serious about this. I get and in, in a very specific way. Like I think. Okay, so so we've we've already established that I play a lot of video games. I, I don't know. I actually don't know if you do. Uh, I, uh, I'm actually getting. I'm reinvigorating my game playing as of a few weeks ago. Okay, so I played a lot like, of I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. Oh, I played. I was all Dungeons and Dragons growing up. Yeah, that was that was fundamental for me. Um, okay, so you know, it's like basically two types of games. And you're like on like PCs and consoles. There's um, kind of first first person games and third person games, right? There's like first person shooters and third person shooters, or whatever. Uh, and like a first person game is, um, you know, you're you are seeing the game world through the eyes of your character, so you know you're running around and shooting or whatever. And then a third person game, uh, you know, and be like like Grand Theft Auto or something is like you're kind of the camera is usually like in back of you, so you're you're seeing yourself moving around and interacting in the world. So in one game, you kind of, in one genre, you sort of see how you look like in the world. And in another genre, you just see the world, but you don't really see yourself in it. Right. And I think like a lot of people 
play like they go through life either in like playing a first player game, a first person game or a third person game. And I don't think there's like any one of those is right or wrong. I just think if you look at, you know, for example, if you look at like most politicians, like Bill Clinton, whatever you think of him, like he's clearly playing a third person game, right? Like he is aware of what he looks like, like in any scene. And right. he's sort of optimizing for that and optimizing for, you know, how to like do everything correctly because he's seeing himself. And a lot of people are like that. And then there's other people who are clearly playing, you know, the first person game where they're kind of oblivious about themselves in the world. They just like, they have things they want to accomplish. They know the way that they want the world to, to bend, but they don't really have a perception of them. For better or for worse, like, I don't know, it always felt like just, you know, going with the U.S. presidents again, like it always felt like, like George W. Bush was probably playing a first person game. But he's like a little bit less like actual visibility in his own head about what he looked like interacting with, with the world. And again, that's like obviously not a judgment at all about their political styles or who you like or don't like or whatever, just more about personality. And I really think that like, I'm fundamentally a first, first person uh, gamer. Like I don't, I don't think about like, well, who do I identify with? Who, who am I most like? What do I look like in this scene? You know, what do I like? Wh- what do I look like from here? Like, how do I change my outfit? Those are things that 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 interest me less than what's the world around me, uh, and that that probably makes me weak at all sorts of things where I should have better self awareness, uh, and it probably makes me stronger at other things. Do you meditate or have a meditative practice? Uh, you know, I I, I I I used to a lot more. So I went through a phase. Uh, you know, it, it's it's required if you're going to live in Silicon Valley that you have <laughs> you know go through these things. So I went through a Zen phase a couple of years the, ago. The Benioff secular actually, baptism. <laughs> yeah, Benioff actually got me into it. Into uh, TM or what type of meditation? No, you know, I've never done I've never done transcendental stuff. Uh, I'm actually kind of interested in the whole like mantra uh, idea. I've never done that. Uh, so just Zen, uh, you know, mindfulness and Zen. And um, I did it fairly actively for about a year or so, um, and uh, but I, you know, I mastered it. Um, I won. I think like I, I <laughs> the the important thing is to try really hard to you know have a goal, set your mind to it, and and you know, and you too can master uh, can master uh, Zen Buddhism. So <laughs> so I became a Zen master, and and uh, you know now I'm onto other things. Now I'm onto Stoicism, which is also <laughs> now you're on to Goat Simulator. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm done. I've reached, you know, level 13 at, at, at being a Zen monk, and yeah, now I'm on the goat simulator. <laughs> Why did you stop? What was the reason for stopping? Um, I, didn't, I didn't really stop. I just sort of, uh, uh, I, I think my, my, my commitment to it kind of waned. So for a while I was meditating, about 20 minutes a day. Um, and, and it was good. It was like very, very clarifying. Um, I then became interested in, in um, like what could we learn from that and what could we apply to different products. Uh, and then I realized that like, as I was meditating, I was actually just spending more and more of my time, like thinking about the meditating, which sort of defeats the whole purpose. Like I was, I was treating Zen meditation as like a very goal oriented thing, kind of the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, and then, um, then I, so then I started reading more broadly and, and, and got onto other things. Um, there's actually a product that, uh, I don't know if you've tried, have, have you seen the, the, the think? No. What is that? T H Y N C. Okay. Uh, oh, that's kind of, okay. I see what they're doing there. Yeah. It's sort of super awesome. And um, if it works, and I've, you know, I'm, I was very, so, so it's basically doing like direct brain stimulation through ultrasound. So you wear this device on your head and it, you know, it beams uh, 
vibes into your brain and um, gives you energy or, and focus or calmness. And I, this totally tripped. Like every bullshit filter I had when I first saw this, like got tripped. I was like, yeah, nonsense. Um, but actually, like I read into it, I, I looked at the science, and it seemed plausible. I was like, oh, this actually, like, this this isn't setting off like red flags for me in terms of just being pseudoscience. Uh, and so I thought, okay, this seems okay. Um, and then I actually got to try it a couple of weeks ago, and my personal experience of it was great. Like I know it's just one person's experience. It's impossible to really say like what's suggestion, what's placebo, what's real. But I had a really good experience with it. So I just, I just ordered it. I should be getting mine the next couple of days. And uh, I'm actually really interested in this. And, the, and this idea that, like, you can actually have significant impact in how you think through meditation. Uh, and, but you might actually, actually be able to have very similar impact in the way you think through just much more direct application of technology, uh, which would be cool. So, like, if I was a robot, you know, how would robots meditate? It would be something like this. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. And uh, the placement, it looks like there's one, there's one res- uh, or sensor or stimulator right where I would think it to be, which is kind of over the right eyebrow. So the dorsolateral prefrontal contact uh, con- right. uh, cortex. Is there another at the back or is that yeah. the only placement point? Yeah. So you have, the- yeah. So you, so what you're seeing in those pictures is um, the hair is covering up the antenna. So what you do is you, you, you attach this like this flexible antenna, which you can kind of see, like there's like super hot models on the website. Uh, you can like <laughs> always helps, right? Yeah, you can see the the. So they there's look two, very elven. They look ones. like Legolas's cousin. Very, yeah, very elven. They're yeah. very elven. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and uh, so the, there's a there's a contact point. Uh, there's so there's two different antennas depending on if you're running the the calming one or the the energy one, uh, and they go into two different places in the back of your head. And yeah, they kind of aim. They triangulate uh, that way. Yeah, and I, like I said, I'm so. I'm actually super interested in this. I've talked to the CEO of the company. I, I talked to their chief scientist. I think it, like, my current inclination is that it's legit, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And uh, but we'll see. I'll I will do a lot more playing around with it. I'll, I should get mine soon. Let's uh, next time. Next time we're in the same time zone, I, I can bring it over and uh, you can tell me what you think. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to play with it. There is. Um, it looks like transcranial direct current stimulation, which it is. Yeah. Uh, there is um, a friend of mine. If you don't know him, I should introduce you guys named Adam Ghazali, who runs uh-huh. the Ghazali Neuroscience Lab at UCSF, and they do a lot of work with this type of technology. So I've, I've actually been a subject and an experimenter in some of their research studies uh, for TDCS. So yeah. I, think there's a, I think there's a lot of promise. You just have to make sure you don't fry your brain into scrambled eggs accidentally. Yeah, you know, details. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that TDCS could be this type of brain stimulation could be very interesting also not just for the direct impact on say performance or subjective state of mind or emotion, but also for showing people what might be possible through meditative practice in the same way that uh, there's a neuroscience PhD and a friend of mine named Sam Harris, who's also on this podcast who no longer uses psychedelics, but his, his early, formative psychedelic experiences showed him what could be possible with dedicated meditative practice. And that's, that's the tool that he now uses. So the interplay of all of those, uh, all of these different tools for expanding or honing consciousness is very interesting to me. Uh, would you, do you use, uh, think mostly for calming or stimulating or both? 
So I've I've only actually used it once. I don't I don't own one yet. I'm I'm you know I've I put in my order. It should be showing up soon. So I've had one direct experience with it, um, which was in London a few weeks ago, and I I did the calming vibe, uh, and it was great. Now basically, I mean, like the, the the woman that was putting it on me says, um, uh, you know, you should as you're using it, you should. She said you should look for signs to see whether or not it's working, and it's like okay, like what? She goes like, well, for example. Um, you know, can you think of some things that, like, right now, if you think of them, they just kind of cause you to get, like, anxious or stressed out or angry. And I'm like, yep, done. Like, I don't need to. <laughs> As a CEO, pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, okay, good. Uh, so, like, in five minutes, like, think of those things again and see how you make me feel. See how they make you feel. And I was like, okay. So, I put this thing on. I'm controlling it with my iPhone. And, I'm, you know, I'm feeling relatively calm. And then, like, five minutes go by and I start thinking about these things that just cause me this, like, fundamental stress and anxiety five minutes earlier. And I was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. That's okay. Like, yeah, I, I can, I can live with that. That, that, that seems normal. I think, I, I think like that's not a problem. And yeah, I'm comfortable with that. And it was just like, it was really impressive to me. And, and I know, you know, I know that could be like a hundred percent suggestion or placebo. Um, but like what I've read about it combined with, with talking to the people that I know combined with direct experience, like it's definitely making me relatively, uh, sanguine about the, the possibilities. Ooh, good word. Sanguine. I always get out GRE'd by my guests on this podcast. It's an issue. I need to <laughs> really need to get some flashcards. Uh, so speaking of purchases, in the last, say, six to 12 months, could be whatever comes to mind, what $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life? Hmm. $100 or less. Uh, it's a start. Uh, it's a starting point. If if any purchase comes to mind that isn't completely out of reach of most people, then that's fine. Um, hmm. I don't know. Let me let me think about it. Um, I've definitely like for some reason my mind like goes to food. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Um, so I have a uh, um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's weird. Maybe it's just because I'm hungry. It's like getting close to lunchtime. <laughs> so, like, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, I'm thinking about this amazing um, uh, hamburger that I had in Tokyo, uh, which was. But yeah, I can't really say that was that was that was that was life changing. It was good. <laughs> or just, I mean, it positive. It does. It does sound like it positively impacted your life. What was spe- was there anything special about the hamburger that comes to mind? So there's this place in Ginza that uh, uh, makes uh, smoked stuff, which is kind of unusual in Japan. They're not really a smoked food culture, but this place just makes like smoked everything, like smoked hamburgers and smoked olive oil and smoked soy sauce and smoked rice and eggs and just amazingly good. And they make like the world's best hamburger. Like my favorite hamburger in the world is in this place. And they also make amazing eggs. They've got these like beautiful, you know, orange in color, like totally fresh, you know, eggs that they can put on stuff. And last time I was there, I actually... About a year ago, I decided I would try to get them to put a fried egg on my hamburger. Um, and this took like 45 minutes of like intense <laughs> negotiation. And they were like, they were very skeptical about like putting this egg on the hamburger. Like it had never been done before. And I was like, come on. And then they were like really kind of nervous about disappointing me. Like they weren't sure how to do it. So it was like about Sorry, 45 I'm, I'm minutes. Sorry, I'm cackling because like, this is like so, so Japanese. I love yeah, it. Yeah, about 45 minutes of like convincing them and then like exactly how to fry the egg and put it on top. And so they finally did it. And I had it and it was like, it was amazing because I was like the only way that you can improve like the best, the world's best smoked hamburgers to put like a perfectly fried runny egg on it. 
Uh, it was great, but they were very like, you could tell they were deeply uncomfortable with this whole experience. And then I went back there um, a year later and it's on the menu. Oh, wow. So wow. I was like, my contribution to, to Japanese yeah. cuisine. Is it called the Libin? No, they didn't name it after me. I was kind of, I was kind of pissed. Kind of, kind of bummed. Yeah. The, uh, I don't think they know my name. So what is, what is the, the man with no name? That's the, that's probably how you're listed on the reservation. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, they don't want to, they, they don't want to summon you, uh, to, to, to put them into more <laughs> uncomfortable culinary situations. What, what was the name of the place? Do you recall? Uh, it's called Ginza Enji. Ginza Enji. Enji, yeah. E-N-J-I? E-N-J-I. Cool. And uh, it's so good. Ginza Enji. Very cool. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best, the best sub $100 purchase in the past, past year or so. Wow. Well, next time I'm there, I'll have to check out Ginza Enji. It's a very, uh, it's a very rundown, cheap part of Tokyo for those people wondering. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was significantly less than a hundred dollars. Yeah. Even, even in Ginza, you can get a hammer. I think for less Ginza than that. literally means like the golden throne or the golden seat. Something but like that. Uh, it's a, it's a fancy neighborhood. The easy to get to, and I think that is also. Correct me if I'm wrong. I might be getting this totally wrong, but the Jiro dreams of sushi. It's it's in the same building. Yeah, it's in the same. Subway yeah, right station there. building, right? It's in the same building. Yeah, it's right. It's like the same. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah. yeah. If anyone listening hasn't seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi, very well worth watching. Uh, what are your now? In just to, to, it's actually a good segue. So that movie is chock full of routines, right? It's very methodical in that restaurant. What are your morning rituals? What is what does the first sixty minutes of your day look like on a day that that is one? that you're free to design, sort of your ideal for 60 minutes? Oh, well, I don't know if I've had an ideal day in a, in a long time. I mean, my actual day is, you know, I wake up and I, you know, I grab my phone and, uh, you know, I see, like, I see if there's any emergencies. Uh, usually, you know, usually there aren't any. And then I... What time do you wake up? Um, you know, I don't really have a fixed schedule. So I, um, I don't have kids, so it's, it's fairly easy to, you know, not not wake up at any particular time. So I usually wake up like a couple of hours before my first meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe two to three hours before my first meeting, just so I have time to like catch up on a little bit of work before, you know, before I head to the office. So if my, if my first meeting, you know, if my first meeting is at nine, I'll wake up at, you know, six, six 30. Uh, but usually I try to schedule meetings. I I try, I'm not like a morning person. So I try to schedule my meetings a little bit later. So sometimes I'll sleep till eight or something. And then uh, I'll kind of walk around the house for, for 45 minutes, you know, drinking coffee and, and usually, you know, with my phone in my hand, checking on various things and, and it gets started slowly. What I would like is um, um, I'd like maybe like I would like to have my digest of the day be more automatic. Like I would like to, you know, hear about like what's going to happen, what, what do I need to know about um, I'd kind of like, I've experimented with setting up various ways where I can maybe like have an RSS feed that I could have read to me or like something like that. And there's, there's, you know, I've had mixed success with that, but it'd be cool to like, it'd be cool to work on something like that. And that's the digest, like your primer for the day to come. Yeah. Got yeah. That, that would be, that would be kind of cool. Cause I, I find like at that time in the morning, like I don't really want to be making decisions, but it's a good time. And, and I definitely don't want to be like talking to people. Uh, but it's a good time to, it's like, my brain is still spongy at that point. It's a good time to like soak in like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to need to start thinking about. 
that's that's productive. I, I hate like I hate early morning meetings. Those are those tend not to go well for me. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, and um, do you do you have any particular evening rituals or ways that you prep for the next day that help you get off to a good start? I don't anymore. I used to. So I used to back. So when I was meditating for about a year or so, I would try to meditate for 20 minutes um, every day um, in the evening. And then I just started like being too tired. So I would just fall asleep in the middle of it, uh, which, you know, isn't, <clears throat> isn't super good. Um, and so at this point, I don't really have any particular thing. I, I've, I've gone back and forth. Like I, I, I tend to try out a lot of the sort of faddish things. I've tried out the, okay, don't look at a screen for the last few hours. You know, just like read a physical book or, you know, don't watch TV or look at a laptop. So I've done that, but that didn't really seem to make much of a difference. Plus, I don't, I don't really have trouble sleeping. Like I sleep pretty well. Um, so I don't, like I don't, I think I'm just lucky. I'm just sort of wired up where, you know, when I go to bed, I fall asleep regardless of kind of what else I was doing. I'm looking forward to getting the Think machine and maybe using that to, to calm down a little bit before sleep. Um, but at this point, I don't have any, any kind of fixed uh, routine. Got it. For people interested in exploring the paths that you've explored for thinking about meaning, why we're here, purpose, etc., we touched on Stoicism briefly, but if you had to recommend, or yeah, if you had to recommend one to three books that you have found very thought provoking, Mm -hmm. what would you recommend? So I would say. So the clock of the long now, definitely. Yeah, it's just like as, as sort of a to set the stage for like how to think about things. It's it's great. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think um, a book that really had a profound influence on me pretty early on was um, uh, the Selfish Gene uh, by by Dawkins. Yeah, and I think that was just reissued in in, in like some like twenty fifth anniversary edition or something that I just saw which is sort of sad that it was 25 years ago that I read it. Um, so that's definitely worth reading for just all sorts of like brain expanding ideas. And then, um, you know, f- for, in terms of philosophy, uh, there's a really, there's a good introduction to, to stoicism um, that I read about a year ago when I first started looking into this. I forget the author, but the title is A, a Good Life. Yeah, that is a good synopsis. Uh, and yeah, it was pretty good. Like it wasn't it, like the, the writing itself, I think it wasn't particularly, you know, shining, but it, it like it, it captured the ideas and presented them in a fairly modern way, you know, pretty elegantly. So that was a good jumping off point to a bunch of other stuff. So I would like, if I, if I had to give three, I would say, you know, I'd say those, those three. Um, but you know, really, I think the important thing for me is to really try to have a coherent philosophy of life and, I think a lot of people, like, a lot of people don't. They they sort of think it's like pretentious to pretend that you can have a coherent philosophy. Why is and, that important to you? What does it allow you to do or help you do? Um, just kind of frames everything and you know gives gives a reason for things. Like I think this is well understood, right? Motivation. So if you're trying to just you know philosophy aside, right? You're just trying to communicate with people. You know you're you're a CEO and you're trying to get people to do what you want it's like proven that people, it's much more effective to give people a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually it turns out that like the reason doesn't really matter that much. What matters is that there is a reason. Yeah. So if, if you say like, Hey, you should do this. 
it's like far more effective to say, hey, you should do this because, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it turns out that even if like the people don't, don't even understand the X, Y, and Z, as long as they, they've like heard a reason, it just like fits much more neatly into the brain yeah. than, than if they have it. So like having a reason just makes smart people far more productive and effective. Um, and that's just very true of me. Like I want to have a reason for, for things. I don't want to feel like I am doing things, um, you know, shrouded by this existential mystery. I want to think that like, I want to have a structure to think about why I am making certain decisions and, 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 uh, having like having a coherent philosophy, uh, makes that, you know, makes that possible. So coherent Uh, philosophy is, would it be comparable in some ways to the 10 commandments where it's like, if you're like, should I covet my neighbor's wife or not? I'm not sure. It's like, well, no, it says do not cover thy neighbor's wife. Therefore decision made. And like, that's the reason. Is it sort of a, 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 do you view it as a set of guidelines and a framework for kind of decision making in life for simplifying things? Or is it more than that? So the, the 10 commandments wouldn't serve this purpose for me just because they don't actually answer the why. Like they're actually like the way the Ten Commandments are phrased. They don't have the because, right? Or, right. That's exactly <laughs> that's sort of like exactly the cognitively wrong way to do it. That those are just commandments. They're not. They're not explanations. Now, there's a lot of religious theory and thought about about the why. So, if you're a religious person and you want to base your life around the Ten Commandments, it's probably possible, and it's probably possible to actually read quite a bit of of you know other commentary uh, that actually give you know compelling reasons. Um, you know, if that's if 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 that's the, the most appealing thing. Uh, so I, I, I kind of prefer to have the why rather than just the, you know, the what. Um, and uh, I don't, you know, I don't have the exact answers, obviously, but I have, you know, I think, I, I think I'm getting, I'm getting like a better and better feeling that things aren't random. There is a purpose. And um, like I can, I can work towards like making the world better in a specific way that in which I want it to be made better. And and that feels great, and that's 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 much more motivating than kind of getting up and following orders, or getting up and and not understanding why. So, is your intention then to communicate this to employees or partners, or is this really something for your own internal use? Oh well, I'm definitely I'm pretty you know apprehensive about talking about anything that sounds like this to you know to employees. Like the last thing I want is you know. Is to be imposing any kind of philosophical worldview uh, uh, on people. So, you know, if we're having uh, off-the-record conversations over a few drinks, I'm always happy to talk about it. But yeah, this is not a my my, my mission in life is not to to convince anybody of anything. I just want to you know, have a structure for myself. <laughs> you don't want to be like Phil of the Branch Davidians. It's not your yeah. goal. <laughs> yeah. The book that you mentioned, I, I looked up uh, the uh, the Stoic overview is by William Irvine and it's a guide to the good life. And yeah. the subtitle is the ancient art of stoic joy. Yeah. Which is a good overview. Uh, it is. It really is. And it's not, it's not what I thought it was. Like, you know, I remember studying stoicism in high school or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think I had all the wrong ideas about, about, about what it is. So it was actually, it was a very interesting read. Yeah. It's, it's helpful because it disabuses people of the notion that stoics are, I remember the description I heard at one point was, um, being a stoic is like being a cow standing in the rain. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's not quite that, not quite that's that serious or <laughs> devoid of positive emotion. Uh, nice. uh, if you could have a, I, I know we have just a few minutes left. Uh, if you could have a billboard anywhere, uh, what would it say and where would you put it? Well, you know, this is like 
Have we talked about this? This is like one of my main goals in life. Oh, no. I don't think we have. Oh, yeah. Like one of the main things that I want to do is I want to be on a billboard advertising whiskey in, in Japan. Like I want to be on a giant <laughs> Japanese whiskey billboard, like totally Bill Murray style. And, but this is like a serious goal of mine. I've, I've, been, like I've been sort of like working towards it for a while. I've, like, I've talked to the right distillers and like, wow. yeah, I think, like, I think there's a chance it'll happen. We should um, make, we should make this happen. Yeah. Let me know if yeah, I can, no, let, I'm, let I'm me know very, if I can like, Giant billboard of me, like holding a glass of whiskey, um, in, you know, in Tokyo, it's kind of like, well, I, I even, I've even figured out what it's going to say. What is it going to say? It's going to be just, you know, so just imagine, you know, it's me with a big glass of whiskey and, uh, the caption will say, um, um, Evernote helps you remember. Suntory helps you forget. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of feels like it needs to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you could have, you know, I just thought of another one. You could say Evernote is forever. Suntory is for tonight. You know? <laughs> also good. You yeah. can have a whole series of these. <laughs> you could. That's amazing. It makes me, uh, it makes me think of the, the, the commercial shoot from Lost in Translation when he's, yeah, exactly. when the director talks for like three minutes and the guy's like, more energy or whatever. And he's like, I think he said more than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite movies oh uh, so good what um one of my favorite parts is actually an improvised part in that movie when he's waiting in the hospital waiting room and those ladies are all cracking up right um just such a good movie uh what advice to your 30 year old self if you had to give advice to your 30 year old self what would it be uh like if i had a time machine or something yeah yeah if you had a time machine and could Deli- deliver advice to your 30 year old self. Hey, if I had a time machine, I can go back. So I'm 43 now. So I can go back 13 years and talk to my 30 year old self. I would be like, uh, I'd be like, dude, don't worry about anything because in 13 years, you're going to have a time machine. <laughs> 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 nothing, nothing else really matters. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that is a good answer. Yeah. Uh, I think I would say, so when I was 30, I was working on stuff that I didn't, I was working on my second company and I didn't like, I wasn't in love with it. I wasn't, I wasn't building it for my, for myself. I was building it for somebody else. And, um, I think what I would have said is like, stop taking people seriously when they say you have to like worry about what, what the market wants and just like build what you want. And I kind of wish I'd, I'd gotten started with that in my twenties, uh, rather than in my you know mid thirties. Is there any other parting advice uh, or do you have an ask or suggestion for everybody listening? Well, um, you know, everyone should, everyone listening should obviously read every word of, uh, of all of your books, you know, inside forward and back, inside and out, especially, especially the chapter in the four hour body that's about me. That's right. The Excel spreadsheet. That's right. Because <laughs> it just makes sense. Because obviously you can't write a book about attaining the perfect body without having a chapter about me. So, <laughs> And in the updated edition that will be published in a year or two, we'll talk about your, your pull-up quest. My pull-up quest is good. And uh, no, there's actually a bunch more to say. You know, I've, I've lost, I think since the last time we've seen each other, I've lost about 50 pounds. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, that's, a, that's a very, that's a sturdy, robust toddler right there. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> actually I just saw um I went on like Getty Image search or whatever. I did a search for, for myself on, on Getty Images and there's like there's like eight years of like you know pictures of me and it's like I'm aging in reverse. That's great. It's actually like it's kinda cool. Like eight years ago I'm like 
I'm like, you know, 250 pounds and I'm wearing a suit and tie and I have a beard. And then just like slowly over eight years, like first the suit disappears, you know, then the collar then like, you know, the tie, the beard, you know, 50 pounds. It's like, I'm definitely in this localized minima. It kind of looks like a major universe, which is kind of cool. So I'm just going to assume that that's going to continue forever. I don't, I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, but we'll see how it goes. It's like Benjamin Button, but in real life. Exactly. The curious case of Phil Libin. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your, your memoir. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, where can people connect with you on the social media? Yeah. And uh, uh, where can they, of course, find out more about Evernote and give it a spin? Well, uh, so Evernote is just at Evernote.com or your favorite app store. And I am uh, on Twitter. I'm P. Libin, and uh, also happy to chat with anyone via email or anything else. I'm Phil at Evernote. Um, my policy is uh, I've been super lucky in um, uh, just being able to get great advice from people when, when I ask. So if anyone actually wants to talk to me, my policy is I have to eat lunch anyway. So anytime anyone wants to come over for lunch, I'm happy to do that. So if anyone's in the area, send me a note and uh, come on by for lunch if you actually, if you actually want to talk. Your lunches. Is- may just become very exciting from this point forward. (laughs) Well, Phil, you're always very generous with your time. You're always fun to hang out with. And uh, there are many more topics we could discuss. So perhaps sometime we'll do a round two. People can let us know what other questions they might have for us to explore. And um, I'm looking at these questions in Evernote. I'm thankful for the product. I've used it for all of my books since we met. I've used it for planning the TV show. I've used it for all of the planning around the podcast. Nice. It, is, uh, it is my go-to sort of central repository for everything. So I want to thank you for that. And thank you, Tim. Of course. And uh, I think we should have some whiskey soon and plan that billboard. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, man. Uh, so thanks so much. I will talk to you soon. Take care, Tim.